According to a recent Gallup poll, 33% of Americans say that they're spiritual, but not religious. And according to the research, you know, this group of people who claim to be spiritual, but not religious, well, they come from different classes, different genders, they come from different ages and races and ethnicities. And while those who insist that they are spiritual, but not religious, well, they come from a diversity of different societal settings, and yet the main thing that they have in common is that they love to be spiritual, but they don't like organized religion. Yeah. They say they love God, but they don't like organized religion, and it's for this reason that I always encourage these people to join us here at Calvary South Austin because we're not organized at all. Listen, when it comes to those who are apparently opposed to organized religion, I can't help but to wonder what their issue is with the ordained order that the Lord has established for his church. What is their problem with the ordained order of the Lord? And with this question in mind, we're going to spend our time today considering the ordained order that the Lord has established for Christian leadership. And as we make our way through the text before us today, we'll soon see that the ordained order of the church includes divine discipleship. Secondly, we'll learn that the ordained order of the church includes loving leadership. Thirdly and finally, we'll consider how the ordained order of the church includes heavenly headship. Well, with this as our outline, let's open our Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Here we find the introduction of Paul's second prison epistle. Now, as you make your way to the first chapter of Philippians, I just want to take a moment to set the stage for our study today. And I, I want to set the stage for our study of this entire epistle because it'll help us to know that Paul penned this epistle around 62 AD, towards the end of his first Roman imprisonment. And, and while it's true that Paul penned this prison epistle in order to encourage the Christians who were there at the church in Philippi, well, it's also true that he wanted to address a divisive disagreement which was occurring between two prominent women there in that church. With this as the goal, Paul began this epistle by reminding his readers about the ordained order of leadership that the Lord has established for every Christian congregation. With this as the focus, let's begin our study of Philippians chapter 1. We'll begin reading, of course, there at verse 1. Here we read, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here in the first two verses of this book, we find Paul. He's preparing to address the division which was occurring at the church there in Philippi. As a matter of fact, when we get to the fourth chapter of this epistle, we'll find Paul. He's admonishing one lady named Iodia, and the other, her name was Syntyche. And, and he's admonishing them to be of the same mind in the Lord. In other words, he's basically saying, hey, ladies, stop arguing. Now, it's possible that these ladies were disagreeing about an important point of doctrine, like maybe women in leadership. It's also possible that they were arguing about something silly, like the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow. We don't know. We don't really know. But either way, Paul reminded them about the ordained order that the Lord had established for the church. With this as the focus, let's back up and consider the way that Paul describes his own leadership position. If you would look with me again there at verse 1, here he declares, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. I want to stop right there. I want to consider the meaning of this word, bondservant. The original Greek word was used of those who were bound. They were bound in the service of another. In some cases, bond servants were bound by some, some measure of indentured servitude. Maybe they had fallen into debt. Maybe they had you know, some sort of ruler that had printed way too much money, and then inflation happened, and then they couldn't afford to pay their bills, and then they ended up in... And not, not that, that that would ever happen today, but, but you know, it's possible that some of these people were 
you know, bound with indentured servitude because they were broke. Others may have been enslaved by an invading army. You know, at this point in time and, and, and in this point in history, it wasn't unusual to have enemies captured, sold into slavery, and then bound uh, as they became bond servants. In the context of the Christian church, though, every believer has, has actually been called to become the bond servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and what this means is that we are bound as the servants of our Savior. In order to make my case here, I want to take a moment to consider the difference uh, in the rank uh, that, that we see between Paul and Timothy. Uh, you, you probably already know this. Paul held a high rank in the first century church. This included his apostolic calling to reach the Gentiles. He was the apostle of the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit had also called him to become the wise master builder who explicitly defined the first principles of the church age. He laid out the blueprint, if you will, for the church age. And, and, and as for Paul's protege, Timothy, well, Timothy served as Paul's representative to several churches. He, he actually came alongside of Timothy. Or, uh, came, Timothy came alongside of Paul as a helper. And, and then he was actually uh, ordained at, at some point in time and then appointed to serve as the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And so while it's true that Paul held a higher rank in the hierarchy of the church and, and was a leader over Timothy, it's also true that Paul saw both positions as equal. They were different, and one was a higher rank in some measure, but Paul treats these positions as being equal in the fact that both he and Timothy were bondservants. They were both bondservants. And so listen, whether a person is called to the position of pastor or they're called to sweep floors, we've all been called to serve the Lord according to our calling. The elder and the new believer, they've both been called to become the bondservants of our Savior Jesus Christ. This is why I just don't really even prefer titles here in our church. I don't really care for titles. And the, and the reason why is because titles, you know, they, they highlight rank. And so I just, I don't even care. Some people call me Pastor Bungie. Some people call me other things. As I always say, just, just don't, don't call me late for dinner. But, but to me, titles don't matter, you know, because we're all supposed to be bondservants of the Lord Jesus Christ. The question is, what is Jesus calling us to do? Whether we're talking about leaders who are called to lead or helpers who are called to help, it's crucial that every Christian remember that we're just the bondservants of our master, Jesus Christ. And it's with this perspective that we're able to maintain the right heart as we set out to serve our Savior. And at the same time, it's also important for us to realize that we've all been called to take part in the discipleship process. To prove my point, let's consider the way that Paul explains this to a pastor named Titus. So hold your place here in the book of Philippians, and let's turn our Bibles to the pastoral epistle of Titus, and specifically Titus chapter 2. As we make our way to the second chapter of Titus, well, I just want to take a moment to point out that Paul and Timothy, they both provide us with a perfect picture of the discipleship relationship. And while it's true that they were both bondservants who were equal before the Lord, it's also true that Paul was the discipler in the relationship and Timothy was the one being discipled. With this in mind, I want to consider the way that Paul explains the importance of discipleship. And, he, and he's explain, explaining this to a pastor named Titus. And so look with me here at Titus chapter 2. We'll begin reading there at verse 1. Here Paul declares, As for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, 
that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility. Sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Here in these verses, we find Paul encouraging Pastor Titus to make sure that the believers in his church were receiving the discipleship that they needed so that they could blossom into believers who were able to then go and disciple others. We must not fail to notice that Paul was directing Titus to make sure that the mature women there in the church were the ones discipling the younger women, and that the spiritually mature men were the ones discipling the, the younger men. And, and from this, we can see then that Paul not only believed in the gender binary, but, you know, he also provided us with a biblical basis for believing that discipleship should be gender-specific. That's right, he's presenting us a case in a pastoral epistle that the discipleship program in the church should be gender-specific. And it's for this reason that I place a greater emphasis on men's and women's ministry here at Calvary South Austin than I do on, say, like home fellowships where discipleship is much more broad. You know, a lot of churches, you know, just love the home fellowship discipleship program, and I'm not, I'm not saying there is a, a problem with that. But for me, I, I see it spelled out plainly here in Titus chapter 2, that the more mature women are discipling the younger women, which is why I emphasize women's ministry. And that the more mature men are discipling the younger men, which is why I emphasize women's ministry. Listen, younger believers need to learn how to live in this world. They need to learn how to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. And seeing how the temptations for men and the temptations for women are different, well, gender-specific discipleship is more important than most Christians realize. With all this in mind, it's important for us to realize that every Christian has been called to take part in the discipleship process. And, you know, you don't have to take my word for it. I, I just encourage you to consider what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28. It's Matthew 28, 18 through 20. This is the great commission of Jesus Christ. It's here where he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. We're to make what? We're to make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and how do we do this? Verse 20, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Christian, listen, every believer has been called to take part and engage in the discipleship process. And this not only includes evangelism by which unbelievers are led to the Lord, but this also includes the discipleship process by which mature believers are helping new believers to become mature believers who are helping new believers who will then become mature believers who are helping new believers who then become mature believers who are helping new believers and et cetera, et cetera, to infinity and beyond. With this as the goal, it's important for us to understand that we've all been called to engage in discipleship, and specifically, you know, gender-based discipleship, as women are discipling younger women and men are discipling younger men. Now listen, if you're a Paul in the discipleship relationship, if you're the mature Christian man, I would take a moment to ask, who's your Timothy? Who is your Timothy? And if you're a Timothy, if you're the younger believer, then you should spend time being discipled by a Paul. So younger men, younger women, you know, who, who is your Paul? Or Pauline, if you will. I should also remind you that all of this should be taking place according to the leadership structure that the Lord has ordained for those who have become his bondservants. In other words, this is supposed to be happening within, in the, within the context of our church. If you're saying, well, my discipler you know, lives in another state or at the other church I used to go to or something like that. Nope. You're called to find a Paul or a Timothy here in your church according to the leadership structure that the Lord has ordained for this church. And that's not to say that you shouldn't talk to other Christians outside of this church. That's not my point. 
but rather in the discipleship relationship, this is supposed to be happening within the context of our church. With this as the goal, I encourage every Christian to become a bondservant who is plugged in, serving our Savior, and in this way, we will receive the discipleship that we need as we serve our Savior side by side because here within our church, we've plugged the discipleship program into the relationship that uh, takes place uh, there in in service opportunities as well as in the men's and the women's ministry as well as the the singles ministry, I guess. But uh, no, I'm joking. you You can be a single and, and be a disciple here as well. But seriously, you know, the, the thing that we have to understand is that the ordained order of the church includes divine discipleship, which has been ordered by the Lord. And if you're a, if you're a, 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 a Paul and you don't have a Timothy, then there's something wrong. If you're a Timothy and you don't have a Paul, then, then there's something wrong here. You're not really engaging in the discipleship process, and you should be. Because the ordained order of the church includes divine discipleship. Not only that, but the ordained order of the church also includes loving leadership. And to explain what I mean by this, let's turn back to Philippians chapter 1. It's here in the beginning of this epistle where we find Paul. He's now elaborating upon the ordained order of the church. And if you would look with me, beginning again at verse 1, here we read Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Now here in these verses we find Paul, he's referring to all the saints there at the church in Philippi. And and within this group of all the saints, we find the bishops and the deacons who were serving the Lord there at their church. Now in order to understand the ordained order of the church... I want to take a few minutes to consider the leadership hierarchy that that the Lord established there at the church in Philippi. And with this as the goal, let's take some time to define the differences between saints, bishops, and deacons. You know, when it comes to the word saints, which is found there in the middle of verse 1, those who grew up in the Roman Catholic tradition, well, they were led to believe that saints are a specific subset of Christians who are canonized and now venerated as holy saints, and you can pray to them and seek help. For example, you know, there's the third century bishop in Paris who uh, is now known as Saint Denis. I like that, Saint Denis. It was after being imprisoned by the pagans there in Paris, he was beheaded. And according to tradition, his body then picked up his own head and the head started preaching a sermon before it then dropped down dead with its final breath, I guess. But it's for this reason that he became known as the patron saint of headaches. And so if you have a headache this morning, you might ask for help from St. Dennis. There's also St. Polycarp of Smyrna. He's the patron saint of dysentery. Now, if you're wondering why, why? Well, Polycarp was a man whose ministry was in an area of the world which was known for this bacterial infection that would cause dysentery. So yeah, you got to have a patron saint of dysentery, and who better than Polycarp of Smyrna? But uh, my personal favorite is Saint Drago. And, and Saint Drago has come to be known as the patron saint of unattractive people. I pray to him daily. But listen... <laughs> When he was 18 years old, he disposed himself of all property and became a pilgrim for the sake of the gospel. And it was during his pilgrimage, that's when he was uh, stricken with disease that caused gross deformities. And it's for this reason that St. Drago, the pilgrim, became the patron saint of unattractive people. So God bless him. But listen, if you were raised to believe that these saints can somehow help us, maybe you're unattractive and you're just praying every day that you would just be more attractive. Listen, try TikTok filters. They're just, they're amazing. But uh, answer to prayer. But listen, it's important to understand that Paul wasn't using the word saints in, the, in these ways. He wasn't referring to saints as some sort of subset of Christians who get canonized and then, and then become venerated so that we should pray to them and these sorts of things. No, uh, Paul instead is speaking of living saints who were actually serving the Lord there at the church in Philippi and, and beyond. 
And just to be clear, you know, the word saint found there in verse 1 was rendered from a Greek word which was used of those who were set apart for God to be, you know, as it were, exclusively his. And, well, this should just be true of all of us. Every born-again believer ought to be a saint set apart for serving the Lord. At the same time, we've, we haven't been called to uh, all become bishops. We've all been called to become saints, but we all haven't been called to become bishops. And with this in mind, let's take another look there at verse 1. Here, Paul declares Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Now, that word bishops, it's translated from a Greek word which means overseer. This is the same Greek word that Paul used when he referred to the pastors there in Ephesus as overseers or bishops. And and in that text, we see that the overseers or the bishops are called to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. What this means is that the title bishop is synonymous with the title pastor or shepherd. The title bishop was initially used in reference to the primary officer or pastor of a local church. We also find the Apostle Peter applying this word to the elders who were called to shepherd the flock. And here's how Peter put it in 1 Peter chapter 5. It's verses 1 through 4 where Peter declares, "...the elders who are among you I exhort." I, who am a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And then when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away." Now, here in these verses, we find the Apostle Peter, he's equating the terms elder, shepherd, and overseer or bishop. I like the way that Dr. Dale Robbins explains this. He declares, and I quote here, the terms elder, bishop, and pastor are generally used interchangeably in the New Testament, although elder primarily refers to the person, while bishop or pastor deals with their office. More simply put, the Lord you know, it, it has called some to become elders who serve in the office of bishop as they act as overseers to shepherd or pastor the flock. And, you know, as, you know, as, as the bishop of this church, you know, I just want you to, to, to understand that I'm expecting everyone now to call me Bishop Bungie. But... Uh, But seriously, as the bishop of this church, you know, I've been called to pastor and shepherd uh, the flock here with orderly oversight. That's my calling here. And as we consider the pastoral position of bishop, well, we should take a moment to ask, you know, can anyone become a bishop? We're all called to be saints. We should all be bondservants. But can we all become bishops? Well, in order to answer this question, I want to consider the qualifications that Paul presented to Pastor Timothy. And so hold your place here in Philippians, and let's turn in our Bibles to the pastoral uh, epistle that was sent to Pastor Timothy. If you would, let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And as you make your way to the third chapter of 1 Timothy, I just want to take a moment to point out that the ordination of a pastor, it doesn't come from a seminary. Some seminaries would tell you otherwise, but listen... The ordination of a pastor does not come from a seminary. And it doesn't come from a church planting organization. You know, there are church planting organizations around the world who think that they have the authority to ordain pastors and send them out. And, uh, you know, we shouldn't be surprised to see that, you know, many of those churches end up closing down because the person that was sent out really wasn't a pastor. In other words, they didn't receive the ordination from the Lord. You see, the ordination for every bishop comes from the Lord and is then confirmed by the sending bishop. And with all this in mind, let's consider the qualifications that Paul presents here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 as he helped Timothy to understand who would have the qualifications for being ordained and sent out 
uh, to continue that work. So look with me there, beginning at verse 1. Here, Paul declares, this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Now, here in these verses, we find Paul, he's helping Pastor Timothy to understand the right qualifications for being a bishop. And in this way, you know, Paul was helping Timothy to understand what should be expected of other believers you know, that, that he might consider for sending out to, uh, to, to pastor other churches. He wants to say, hey, here's the qualifications. So before you decide to send them out, before you decide to ordain someone as a bishop, uh, make sure that they fit into these qualifications. Listen, just because a believer desires the position of bishop, and, and he says there at the beginning, if a man desires the position of bishop, he desires a good work. So it's not a bad desire to want to be a bishop, and yet that doesn't mean that they're ready to be sent out and plant you know, a church and pastor uh, you know, another flock. And so these qualifications ought to be, to be met. Uh, we should also notice that Paul took the time to present Timothy with the qualifications regarding the position of deacon. And, and I do believe that this is in reference to the lead deacon position. And if you would look with me again here at 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, and let's pick up at verse 8 where Paul declares, Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with pure conscience, but let these also be uh, first tested, then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own house as well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now here in these verses we find Paul, he's presenting the qualifications for the position of lead deacon. And the word deacon here is translated from a Greek word that speaks of those who serve others. And so, you know, you can, you know if, if you are in a deacon position and you, you take pride in being a deacon, listen, what you're really saying is, I'm a servant. I'm a servant of servants. I'm a servant of bond servants. That's what this is. It's a, it's a service position. And, and while it's true that we've, we've all been called to serve one another as deacons and deaconesses, well, it's also true that some saints have actually been called to serve in the position of lead deacon. And it's here where we find the qualifications for that position of lead deacon. It's also important to notice that the lead deacon position is gender-specific. In order to prove my point, let's take a closer look there at 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's verse 12. There Paul declares, let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own house as well. Now, here in this verse, we find Paul, he's helping Pastor Timothy to understand that the position of lead deacon, well, it should only be given to men who abstain from the practice of polygamy according to the love of the Lord. And while it's true that women can hold positions of leadership, like Phoebe did, you know, Phoebe was called a deaconess uh, in her church. Uh, still, though, the lead deacon position is dedicated to disciples who only have one wife and who are raising their children according to the truth of God's word. That is one of the requirements. In the same way, the position of pastor is also gender-specific. To prove my point, let's take another look there at 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's there uh, at verse 1 where Paul declares, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good thing or a good work. And then he says this, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. From this we can see that the leadership position of pastor is a role that the Lord has given to the men that he chooses to ordain. And what this means then is that the Lord has determined that the ordination of the pastoral position is for men and for men alone, and specifically uh, men who are abstaining from polygamy. Now, I realize that this flies in the face of the modern feminist movement. 
And if you're a feminist who's currently being triggered right now, look, listen, I, you know, I, I, I'm not telling you what I think. I'm telling you what the Lord said. And I'm just going to be humble enough to agree with the Lord. I'm also aware of the fact that there are many Christians who insist that, well, this, is, was, this was just a cultural concept there in Ephesus. You know, Timothy was pastoring the church in Ephesus. And so based on the culture, you know, that, that was true for them there in the first century, but it no longer applies to us now. This no longer applies to us in the 21st century is what many will say. And yet what they're failing to realize is that the previous chapter proves them wrong. As a matter of fact, it's in 1 Timothy chapter 2, it's verses 11 through 14, where Paul declares, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Now listen, just to be clear, Paul is not suggesting that women must remain silent from the minute they enter the church building until the moment they leave. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, women, when you get to church, hush, you know, no, no, no talkie. That's not what he's saying. Case in point, we find biblical examples of women singing in the church and praying in the church and speaking in tongues in the church. And, and we find women, examples of women in the church Speaking, using their, their, their mouths to, to say things. Clearly, Paul wasn't telling women that they needed to, to be quiet in the church, you know, in, in a, just a general uh, a sense here. No, instead, he's telling them to yield in cooperation to the pastor as he was presenting the sermon. And there might be a few reasons for, for why he targeted women on this one, but regardless, the... the the admonishment here is, listen, as the pastor is teaching the Bible, don't be carrying on conversations. As the pastor is teaching the word of God, don't, don't, don't be firing off questions in the middle of the sermon if you, don't, you know, if you want to know more about what's being said. Not only that, but he also informs them that they weren't permitted to occupy the position of pastor. So not only you know, should everyone pretty much remain silent you know, during, uh, during the sermon, unless there's a fire. If there's a fire, please let us know, you know. But uh, other than that, you know, the, it's, it's respectful for everyone to just remain silent as the sermon is being presented. But beyond that, he lets, lets them know that they're not permitted to occupy the, uh, uh, the position of pastor. Notice again in verse 12. Paul declares, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Now, is he saying that women can't teach the Bible? Uh, you know, I've, I've heard some women teaching the Bible, you know, much better than I can. You know, so it's not that women can't teach the Bible. We, we even see in Titus 2, women are called to disciple other women. No doubt about it. You can't get around that. So he's clearly not talking about all women can never teach the Bible ever. That's not the point. But again, this is a pastoral epistle dealing with pastoral issues. And, and here Paul is saying, I don't permit a woman to teach. In what context? In a pastoral context. And that's supported by the very next statement, or to have authority over a man. And that's, that's talking about that pastoral authority. Timothy is a pastoral epistle written to a pastor for the purpose of understanding pastoring the church. And in that context, women are not to teach or to take authority, uh, the authority of, of the pastor. That being the case, we should ask then, uh, was this a cultural norm? Was this something that was just true in Ephesus in the first century and now we can just scrap it? Or, or does this doctrine still apply to us here in the 21st century? Well, in order to answer this question, let's take another look there at 1 Timothy chapter 2. I, I want to Draw your attention to verse 12 again. Paul declares, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence for, what's the reason? Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. Now, here in these verses we find Paul, he's you know, uh, basically bolstering his argument here by pointing back to the created order of Adam and Eve. Now, that, does that sound cultural for Ephesus in the first century? No, he takes us all the way back to the garden. 
He takes us all the way back to the beginning. The basis, you know, for this ordained order of leadership is based on what happened there in the garden. And we should also notice that Paul not only appealed to the order of creation, but he also appeals to the order of transgression, which began with the deception of Eve. Now, in light of these things, I can assure you that those who dismiss this verse about the ordained order of the Lord, you know, as they dismiss this verse as being nothing more than a cultural norm that we can now ignore, well, they're simply rejecting the ordained order that the Lord has established for the church. Simply put, listen, the Lord is the one who chose to prohibit women from the pastoral position as well as the lead deacon position. The Lord is the one who, who has uh, you know, given this prohibition within the ordained order of the church. At the same time, the Lord has called Christian women to serve. Uh, Christian women ought to be serving, you know, like, like the deaconess Phoebe in, in the book of Romans. The Spirit of God will also empower women to prophesy, or, or to prophesy, I should say, you know, like the daughters of Philip the Evangelist did. And, and as we've already seen, women have been called to engage in the discipleship progress, uh, process, you know, by, by discipling women and even kids. And as we consider all of the ministerial opportunities that women are able to engage in, I still realize that there will be those who think that this is very unloving. That, that this is offensive to place pastoral prohibitions on women. There are even those who try to convince us that the prohibition of female pastors is nothing more than patriarchal bigotry. Yeah, like, like, like guys, you know, have been working all these years to keep women from the, you know, pastoral position that, that, that brings, you know, great conflict with those they pastor and these sorts of things. Like, like men are just like, we got to hold on to this position, you know, and stop all women because, you know, we know they'll be better than us at it. And so we got to keep them down, you know. And Yeah, that's what some people think. What these people fail to realize is that they're taking issue with the ordained order of the one who actually created the church. Listen, if you create something and then you take that and say, okay, this is how it's supposed to work. I'm the creator, I'm going to tell you how it's supposed to work, right? And then everybody, goes, everybody else says, nah, you know, don't, don't listen to the creator of that thing. Let's, let's use it in other ways. Let's do it in a different uh, fashion here. It's not, good, uh, it's not a good idea. The people who argue against this are taking issue with the orders of the one who created the church. Not only that, but they're taking issue with the Holy Word of God. The, the Word of God says what it says. And we ought to line up with it. And that being the case, I invite every Christian to remember that we don't know better than God. We might think we do. But I'm here to tell you, feminists don't know better than God. At the same time, I also encourage you to realize that this doctrine is not unloving. It's very loving if you understand the, the mind and the will of God. Because listen, this does not diminish the value of women. As a matter of fact, the scriptures are perfectly clear that men and women are equal but different. And I like the way that Paul explains it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's there where he declares, Neither is a man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through women. But all things are from God. From this we can see that men and women are equal and yet different. I know that's shocking to many people here in the 21st century. But men and women are equal but different. And as equals, we, we can rejoice in knowing that the Lord loves both men and women with the same sacrificial love. At the same time, men and women are dr drastically different, and it's for this reason that the Lord has called us to serve in different roles. He has his reasons. And if you think that this is unfair or unloving, then we should consider the way that the triune God includes three distinct persons who are equal and yet have different callings. This brings us to our third and final point because, listen, the ordained order of the church not only includes divine discipleship and loving leadership, but the ordained order of the church also includes a heavenly headship. And to explain what I mean, let's make our way back now to Philippians chapter 1. It's here in the beginning of this epistle where we find Paul. He's invoking the grace and the peace of God upon those who read this epistle. So look with me again, beginning at verse 1. Here we read, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, 
to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here in the second verse of this epistle, we find Paul presenting the common greeting of grace and peace. That word grace was the common greeting that was offered by those who were the Greeks. And the word peace was the the word that the Jews used in their greetings to one another. And seeing how the first century church uh, included both Greeks and Jews, well, Paul seems to have created this greeting that he often used in his epistles. and, And he did this in order to connect with every believer there in the primitive church. He wanted to know that, that he was greeting the Greeks, and he wanted to know, uh, them to know that he was greeting the Jews as well. Paul was uh, quick to remind them as well that the true source of grace and peace is God alone. As a matter of fact, look with me again there at verse 2. Here again, Paul declares, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here in this verse, we find Paul reminding his readers that the grace and the peace that he was talking about, it actually comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In this context, the grace of God refers to the unearned, unmerited favor of the Lord by which sinners are saved. And the peace of God refers to the tranquil state of the soul that's resting in the assurance of their salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And I have no doubt that Paul truly wanted those who were reading this epistle to enjoy the grace and the peace of God, especially those who were you know, in this church even dividing over some sort of contentious issue at that point in time. At the same time, though, listen, it's also important for us to realize that the grace and the peace of God is available to sinners like us because the Logos of the Lord agreed to submit himself to the will of God the Father. Just to be clear, I should take a moment to remind you that the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ is the infinite Logos of God. And what this means then is that the Logos of the Lord Jesus is co-equal with God the Father and with the Spirit of God. What this means then is that the Logos of the Lord Jesus, well, he agreed to humble himself by taking on the form of a bondservant so that he could come and present himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. This is precisely the point that Paul will go on to make in the next chapter of this epistle. And we're going to get there, so we're going to drill down into this you know, deeply when we get to Philippians chapter 2. But I'll just point out in verses 6, 7, and 8 there in, in the second chapter of this epistle, Paul tells us that Jesus Christ, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. In other words, listen, the logos of the Lord Jesus is equal with God the Father because they're both, uh, you know, Uh, existing within the Godhead eternally. And, And yet, though they were equal, the Logos still chose to humble himself by taking on the role of a human bondservant and became obedient. To whom? To God the Father. The Logos took on human frailty, submit himself to God the Father as an act of obedience. At the same time, the Father fulfilled his role by sending the Holy Spirit to empower the, uh, the, the, the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ so that he could accomplish this mission. And in this way, we see how the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are co-equal persons within the Godhead, And yet, at the same time, they each perform different roles in the redemption of sinners. God the Father took on a more authoritative instructional role, while Jesus Christ took on a submissive servant role so that he could obey the will of God the Father. Does that make the Logos less than the Father? Absolutely not. They're equal, but with different roles. 
With this in mind, I want to now consider the ordained order that Paul goes on to present in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's verses 2 and 3 where he he declares this, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. That's all I've got to say. So, uh, no. <laughs> Here's an ordained headship that begins with God the Father. And in the context of the creation and even the church, uh, you know, God the Father is the head of Christ. Does that mean Christ is less than? Nope. It's just the ordained order. God the Father is the head of Christ, and he sent Christ to, to become the head of man. And then he sent, sent you know, man to become the head of woman, which was established there in the Garden of Eden. Now, this is not to suggest that every man can take authority over every woman. Nope. Remember, wives have been called to submit to their own husbands. So, ladies, you don't need to go submit to someone else's husband or some single dude or something like that. You've been called to submit to the headship of your husband. And this submission is not like a child to his parents, but rather it's a yielded cooperation working together under the headship of Christ Jesus. And with that, husbands should also remember that we're serving our wives under the headship of Jesus Christ. Now listen, if you're offended by the ordained order that the Lord has established, then is the problem with God's order or is the problem with you? Are you going to accuse God of getting it wrong in this ordained order? Because patriarchy bad and all women are good and these sorts of things. I don't know better than God. I know you don't know better than God. So why don't we just submit to God? Why is it so hard to accept his ordained order? Well, because, you know, It's just hard to submit, isn't it? And yet, really, the the issue is pride. If you're offended by the ordained order of the Lord, then chances are you're simply struggling with pride. And with that, I want to consider something that Peter wrote. It's, It's again in 1 Peter chapter 5. There he declares, The elders... Who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Christian, listen, we've all been called to become humble bond servants who are living in submission to the ordained order which has been established by the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. And much like the Lord Jesus, who humbly submit himself to the will of his heavenly Father, we've been called to submit ourselves to the leadership hierarchies that the Lord has established here in the church as well as at home. And as we humbly embrace the heavenly headship that the Lord has established here on the earth, well, we'll enjoy the grace and the peace that the Lord pours out on those who trust him. If you're constantly fighting against this ordained order, you're not going to have peace in your heart. But those who will simply submit 
to the ordained order of the Lord will enjoy both grace and peace. Now, as we begin to wrap up this study, I encourage you to remember that the ordained order order of the Lord is perfect. Because everything the Lord does is perfect. And while I can't sit up here and tell you why he made man head of women, that sort of thing, like, I don't get it. I know many women much smarter than me, much, you know, more brilliant than me. And all, you know, like, I don't know why God did did it this way, but he did. And it's perfect. Therefore, those who want to become mature believers who are growing in the grace and the peace of God, we should first make sure that we're just simply and humbly submitting to the order that the Lord has ordained. And just to be clear, it'll help us to remember that the ordained order of the church includes the divine discipleship that occurs when older believers disciple younger believers with gender-specific instructions. The ordained order of the church also includes loving leadership, which begins with godly men who are ordained to oversee the flocks of the Lord. And finally, the ordained order of the church includes the heavenly headship that God the Father has ordained through the submissive obedience of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And with all this as as just gospel truth, you know, I encourage you to remember that every believer has been called to comply. Every believer has been called to become compliant Christians who are submitting to the ordained order that has been established by our Savior Jesus. And so rather than wrestling with God about the roles that you haven't been called to fulfill, why not focus that energy on answering the call that you have? Rather than looking at a position that God is not calling you to and getting upset, Why not figure out what is God calling you to? How does he want you to be a bondservant in the church today? And with this as the focus, let's pray for the Holy Spirit to help us to fulfill the role that we're actually called to accomplish. And in this way, we will become those obedient saints who are resting in the grace and the peace of God and all according to his ordained order. Let's pray. Lord Jesus,